0: Welcome to episode 52 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, where we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The Countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And I've got uh, two people joining me this week. Those of you who've been listening to the Thor editions before will no doubt remember Professor Alan. Welcome back, Alan. Glad
1: to be here, Blaine.
0: Thank you. And in his first time on this particular podcast, we've got Mr. Ed Moore. Welcome aboard, Ed.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: All right. So why don't you guys introduce yourselves and let people know where they could find you. They've heard that from Alan already, so that'll be a reminder. So why don't we start with Ed this time?
2: All righty. As everyone has heard, my name's Ed Moore. I'm all over the interwebs as uh, Miskatonic, probably, is how you will have run across me if you have run across me. If you haven't, that's not necessarily a bad thing we'll just leave it at that. I do uh, several podcasts, uh, very similar uh, in nature to what we're doing here today. As a matter of fact, I do three that cover comic books that uh, most listeners probably, possibly, I'll say, could be interested in. And I do a fourth that is uh, m- more kind of a-, a love affair that I share with my wife. She podcasts with me. and We talk about dance competition shows like So You Think You Can Dance and Dancing with the Stars. The comic book shows that I do, I do a single voice based around Dr. Fate, a single voice based around the Ronin Rabbit, uh, Usagi Yojimbo from Dark Horse Comics, and I do a Marvel Thor podcast also with my wife, The Mighty Thorcast, which I suspect may be why I have this particular invite.
0: Well, it's a possibility. They're on iTunes,
2: all all of them come out through uh, Derek Coward's Deliberate Noise family. The three comic book shows come out through his comic book noise. Uh, they're all available on iTunes. They're also available on Stitcher. Truth be told, they're available on any source that the Deliberate Noise network uses. All right.
0: So, and Alan, why don't you remind our listeners about where they can track your stuff down?
2: part
1: of the relatively geeky family of podcasts at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or on iTunes. And my solo show is The Quarterbin podcast. I also do the joint show Shortbox Showcase with my 20-something daughter Emily, and I'm also part of a show that deals with books that don't have accompanying pictures to go with them, The Book Guy Show.
0: Okay. So the books that actually have to be read.
1: I prefer the ones with pictures, but don't tell those guys, okay?
0: Okay. So as Ed alluded to earlier, this episode is about Thor. Uh, specifically, Thor God of Thunder, issues 1 to 11. This pulled out rank number 52 in the ratings. It's actually one of the more recent stories that made the list of the top 75 Marvel comics, written by Jason Aaron, who adds of the time of this recording is still writing the Thor title, even if it's a different Thor running lead. The majority of the issues were done with the art by Isad Ribik. Issue 1 had Jackson, a.k.a. Butch, Geese, or Geis, G-U-I-C-E, On Pencils, and Tom Palmer for Inks. He said Ribic did Issues 2 through 11. Similarly, Issue 1 had Colors by Dean White, and 2 through 11 had Colors by, I'm hoping I'm going to pronounce this remotely correctly, Ive, I-V-E that, yeah, I apologize if I brutalized it, but you can run the spelling through Google if you're interested in more. Letters by Joe Sabino. The assistant editor was Jake Thomas. The main editor was Lauren Sankovic. And the editor-in-chief for this period was Axel Alonzo. The cover date was January 2013 through October 2013. So this is one of the Marvel Now releases in the first wave of Marvel Now. The actual street release dates were ranging from November fourteenth, 2012 to August fourth, 2013. Now, with the technical details out of the way, we'll drop in a promo for one of the shows hosted by one of this week's guests. And then we'll come back and talk about the story itself.
1: You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin Or even bad comics are a bargain. And good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny.
0: And we're back. So here we are talking about Thor, God of Thunder issues 1 through 11. We've already said that this was part of the Marvel Now relaunch in the first wave, but what does that mean for the character? Was this one of the ones that just redefined the character? Was it one of the ones that just said, no, you know what, we've got a really good story to tell with this character as he or she is now. Marvel Now did a variety of things. It's safe to say at the outset it is less extreme than Superior Spider-Man was in that Marvel Now relaunch a couple months later.
1: You know, you, you mentioned, uh, Blaine, that this was the, this was the, the start of Jason Aaron's run on Thor. He's been at it for now a couple of years. And I wonder if we'll look back on it and say this is the start of a long, impressive run. You know, so that may end up being part of the significance of it.
0: It could be. I mean, for all we know, we're looking, this could be the same as, you know, looking at the first arc of Walt Simonson's run back in the eighties.
2: Yeah. I I think that the, Marvel Now moniker was used here to give a hot creator an opportunity at a property that perhaps he had expressed interest in. Uh, but I think also that uh, he used, as as far as I know, a technique that hadn't been used much, if at all, uh, as far as the storytelling structure. Um, that's not necessarily something that's important to the character, but perhaps comic book medium, it will turn out to be something that – is there there's a mark made uh, for years to come as far as his technique that he started using uh, in this particular arc of his his Thor run?
0: Yeah, that's entirely possible, and that's one of the things we like to discuss is the impact this has on the story or on the industry. One of the downsides to having a story this recent show up on the list is that it's really too soon to tell what that impact is going to be in a lot of ways. We can look at it go like you said that the structure is very unique. We could say, this is the first time we see this structure. We could say, this is the first introduction of a villain who may turn out to be a pretty significant, ongoing villain for Thor. There's a lot of possibilities here. Could be if someone downloads this 20 years from now, they go, man, how could they not mention this and this and this and this? Well, because it's not published yet. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of potential here. And this is coming... Well, I might as well get into my own personal story with this because it's relevant just now. As I mentioned, when Alan and I were talking about Thor 362 not that long ago. I've never really been a, well, someone who takes to Thor. Right? The, the concept of Thor as, you know, this god come to Earth just didn't appeal to me. And one of the things that I liked about Walt Simonson's handling of the character is also present in Jason Aaron handles this character. So I read this through Marvel Digital Unlimited for the sake of this podcast, and I really enjoyed it, partly because they just outright embraced the Asgardian aspect again. But in this story... There's very little to bring him to Earth. It's pretty much an Asgardian story. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you have this character that I don't think fits that well on Earth, and they didn't even try to put him there.
1: To me, the obvious comparison is Wonder Woman, and the struggling with how in both cases, you know, how do you make those premises work in in a universe with other heroes, or just how do you make how do you make those stories work on Earth? And I think both of those characters have struggled. And I think that one of the strengths to me of the New 52 was the Wonder Woman book. And it did, in essence, what Aaron is doing here with this Thor book, and that is not worrying about the rest of anything going on in Marvel, in this case, DC in that case, and telling a story related to the gods and just doing that, forgetting the trappings, in this case, forgetting the baggage of Jane Foster and Donald Blake. just telling a Thor-as-a-God story and not trying to fit it into anything else. I think, to some extent, it's similar to Wonder Woman, that's where Thor can thrive, I think.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there's this isn't completely devoid of the rest. There's a, a brief cameo by Iron Man. I mean, as Ed said, there's a unique story structure in that we're looking at three different points in Thor's history. So we're seeing a young Thor before he's even worthy of Mjolnir. We're seeing the Thor as he is in the continuity of the time this is published. And we're seeing a far future Thor when Ragnarok seems like nothing, and he's really the only Asgardian left, with the full Odin power, which is now called Thor power, since he's wielded that power longer than Odin ever did. And it feels like Iron Man's introduction in a cameo, was a couple pages long, with a grand total of two reasons for it to be there. One was to acknowledge that, yeah, Thor's a member of the Avengers, so that when they're referring to him in the narrative later, to distinguish which Thor we're looking at, There's young (laughs) Thor, King Thor, and Thor the Avenger. And the other purpose was to just acknowledge that, yes, Thor is part of a bigger continuity, but when he turns to Iron Man and said, this is out of your league. I'll deal with it without the Avengers. It's also their way of saying, yeah, they're in this continuity, but you're not going to see them for the rest of the story. Go away, we're doing our own thing.
2: (laughs) And, you know, Blaine, I, I have to agree with you. One of the, um, my, I always find Thor to be slower when they try to ground him. I'm very much a fan of, who Thor is when he is allowed to be the Asgardian God of Thunder in Asgard and the Nine Realms and fighting those creatures as a fo- as opposed to fighting aliens or time travelers or just straight up gangsters like they started with. I always have felt that is beneath this character that if you really want to use this character, you have to use Loki or the Enchantress or the God Killer or... Ego, the living planet, you know, those larger-than-life concepts, because there is nothing street about Thor. He he is too large a character, I think, to be used in, in those types of stories. And so attempts to ground him always kind of leave me flat, personally, whenever I read those.
0: Honestly, I think that could be why I had such a hard time getting into Thor. A lot of these characters, my first introduction was in the Essential volumes. Mm-hmm. And I found out after the fact... Martin Goodman, who owned the company, went to Stan Lee and said, Superman is selling really well over at DC. He's a character that's practically got the powers of a god. Make me a Superman killer. And Stan Lee's response was, how do I write a character that's as powerful as a god in this grounded Marvel universe? I don't know. I got it. I'll just make him a god. He came up with the idea, (laughs) handed the concept off to his brother to actually script for the first couple of issues, which is why we have that really embarrassing moment in Journey into Mystery 84 where successful nurse Jane Foster daydreams about giving up the silly career and just ironing Thor's cape and cooking his meals and cleaning his apartment. But yeah, that did nothing to endear the character to me (laughs) right off the bat. But then, you know, we get to the regular Stanley style where he's either doing the crazy sci-fi things with the stone man from Saturn Mm -hmm. from his first appearance, or you get your Zarko the Tomorrow Man or all these others. And it's just, he is a god. He doesn't belong here. Right. From my understanding, he really didn't come into his own as a character until Jack Kirby took over the artwork and basically spent a lot of time off Earth dealing with foes like Galactus. Right. So the entire Fantastic Four just barely pulled it off with the help of the Watcher and the Silver Surfer. And Thor takes on Galactus solo, where we actually get Galactus' backstory. Right? It's, this feels like it's more in that spirit. Going back to those essentials, the Tales of Asgard parts were the ones I enjoyed the most where they're actually doing the mythology.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely I definitely agree with you. uh some of my fondest memories are reading Thor as he was coming out, reading about him being on a viking longship sailing through space with just an open deck and everybody walking on deck and every, that was just as as a, a youngster, no need to really discuss how young, but as a youngster, that was just an an awesome visual image. No need to try to figure it out because that wasn't the point. The point was to be absorbed and captivated into that, and just go along for the ride. And and whenever I revisit those stories, I feel that again. So that's that's always to me some of the the coolest times with Thor is is when he is on an open boat sailing through space.
0: Okay, we don't see a lot of that here, but uh, so this story, Ed. How did you first come across this particular Thor story?
2: Uh, I have. Read Thor for as long as I can remember, so I was naturally reading the book as well as working towards keeping up with current Thor storylines for my own Thor podcast. So as as it came out, I read it both as a part of my comic book reading normally, but also as part of my interest in material for for my Thor podcast.
0: Okay, and um, Alan, how about you?
2: Not to be too pandering to my
1: co-host, but I was first exposed to this story on the Mighty Thorcast, hosted by Ed and Terry Moore. Wow. (laughs) Basically, how I keep up with new comics is listening to podcasts. That's pretty much where I get my new comic (laughs) reviews from. And the ones that seem interesting, I occasionally purchase, mostly wait for the trades to come out at the library and pick them up and read them that way. So this is all Ed's fault. Oh, Oh, I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, I guess it's not in the quarter bin yet.
1: You know, I found a couple. I found a couple of Marvel nows, but not many.
0: (laughs) No, and I could probably guess which ones. But this is a podcast about the greatest Marvel stories. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we might as well give a broad plot synopsis of these eleven issues. Which I mean, this is a, as I said, it's an interesting story structure. Going by the titles, what we really have here are three stories. A five-part arc, a standalone, and then another five-part arc. But it really is one story, right? If you stop at the end of part five, you your story hasn't ended yet. The one shot really makes sense because it's filling in the backstory of the villain that was introduced here. It's the villain's origin as the intermission, so to speak, before we come back for the next five-part arc, which really does feel like it's got as much of a conclusion as comics that aren't cancelled ever really have. The first arc... Is the one where we're jumping through three time periods in Thor's life, in which he is fighting the god killer that Ed already mentioned. That's this new villain, who's someone who you know, lived on a planet of hardship, and, you know, he lost everything that mattered to him, wife, child, all of that. And his parents, and everyone who lost was saying, well, you know, we have what we have because of the gods, if we pray to the gods, they'll see us through this. They died anyway. So, he basically became the equivalent of an atheist, or practically an atheist. He didn't disbelieve in gods, he just felt that No, these gods exist, but they're not worthy of our worship. And we should ignore them and go go our own way. And just to prove that point, he decided to go out there and kill every god in existence, thanks to a weapon that he happened to stumble upon. So we're seeing Thor face off against him, first as young Thor, where he believes he's won, when all he's really done is piss the God Killer off enough that he says, Okay, Thor, you're on my radar. You're not going to get a quick and easy death. You're going to see me destroy everything around you first, and then you die last. The Thor the Avenger is the age where he realizes that he didn't actually die in their first encounter. And he starts going after him again, and then King Thor is the far future one where he's the only god the god killer hasn't killed yet. And the three of them, through the fun of time travel, which i one of my favorite moments is when, you know, the young Thor is going, I can't believe this is possible. You know, can you believe it? Time travel's real. And the other two Thors are going, man, I hate time travel.
1: <laughs> you know, but, there comes a point in every time travel story where the writer sort of has to hang a lantern on some of the the, you know, the paradoxes. And so I like that. I, I, I like that moment. And yeah. and one of them basically says, it's time travel. Who knows how this works? Right? Because every reader at some point thinks, is this Star Trek time travel? Is this Back to the Future time travel? What version of time travel is this? So it's almost become cliche now that the writer sort of has to address that but it did it in a very entertaining way
0: in this case. It did, yeah. And it's because of the way they handle it, where they didn't even really try to explain it, it's hard to poke a logical hole into it. It's not like the, the final episode of Next Generation where the only logical explanation for all of the events we see on screen is that Picard really is going senile.
2: But anyway. <laughs> well, I, I guess you can honestly find solace in the fact that in this particular story, it is magic. Yep. So
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, they're deliberately... De- Magic in comic book Thor is not the same as magic in movie Thor where they're basically saying it's not magic it's just science way beyond what you understand. In the Marvel universe, magic is a thing that exists separate to science and the Asgardians use it as well as other gods. So yeah, they're as soon as you introduce something that is legitimately magic, we're saying, you know what this is not going to fit your theories of science because we're breaking them as soon as we, you know, wave our wands or say the magic words or cast our spells in whatever manner we have. So Yeah, they do get that loophole, which allows these to coexist. You know, if they do have that time zones out of sync, not calling it that, but essentially the Doctor Who idea where when you have multiple incarnations of the same character meeting each other, ah, it's going to make the memories fuzzy, so none of them are going to clearly recall it afterwards. Right. Which apparently is a built-in part of the universe, because it doesn't matter how they time travel. It could be the magic of the Asgardians, or, you know, the technology of Zarco the Tomorrow Man. (laughs) Apparently this is the way time travel always works for Thor. So, In the the final five issues, or the third story arc in the story, if you'd like, after we get the origin of our villain in part in issue six, the issues seven to eleven show the villain's master plan, where he has created a bomb with the help of the god of bombs, who he's managed to intimidate and bully into making the plans for him. This bomb is able to identify and locate gods throughout all points in time. So when he detonates it, it will kill every god who's ever existed at any point. Apparently the ones he's already killed will also die this way. So it's up to the three Thors combined, and anyone else they can find who's still alive that they're able to rally to their cause to stop this weapon before it detonates. So those are the broad strokes of the story. I don't know if there's any crucial details you guys feel should be mentioned as well.
2: Not, I don't think, inherent in the story. I believe there are a couple other things that occurred in the story that may be an ongoing part of uh, of Thor uh, some characters and, and some other concepts as, as we've mentioned the storytelling concepts. But other than that, no, I, I think the broad strokes, fortunately or unfortunately are, are a pretty good, uh, uh summation of this story.
0: Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, I would say this, this pitch and most of the Marvel now pitches came out of a retreat where a lot of people realized they were close to the ends of their run, ready to move on. And a lot of creators in the room were excited about the possibility of taking over books. P- other people were prepared to leave. Mm-hmm. So the whole Marvel Now initiative, it involved some shifting around, like Matt Fraction's Iron Man. In order to do that, they brought on another artist to do another story arc so that they can move up his release date four months to get him in the same window. And other tweaks like that. And apparently everyone is excited about swapping characters like Bendis leaving the Avengers and going to the X-Men and so forth. With the exception of Dan Slott. You know, when they got to him saying, who do you want to write? And he just like picked up all the Spider-Man they could find and started yelling, mine, 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 and ran out of the room. <laughs> The only reason he got away with staying on his books is because he convinced Axel Alonzo Superior Spider-Man was different enough from Amazing that it was worthwhile. Originally, Superior Number 1 was just supposed to be Amazing, 701. But this is one where I swear it's just they're in the room, and Jason Aaron had the idea for a really good story. This may be a building block into major changes with the character down the road, which, I mean, as we've seen, Jason Aaron, he wrote Original Sin. He's writing Thor now. We've seen some major changes in the title. I haven't personally read those issues. So I don't know how much of that was fed from here, but you can read this in isolation and go, that was an awesome story.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I like that. I mean, and, and the sort of the broad brushes of the story, you know, is something I've read before in fantasy novels with sort of the concept of a villain. Usually in that case, you know, the villain's life goal is to wipe maybe magic off of the face of the earth. I've read that in Terry Goodkind novels and in, and in, and in, in, in other novels, which is similar to the goal here of, you know, as, as he put it, the, the dream of a godless universe. So it's a it's a sort of a common fantasy trope also for there to be multiple gods either themselves battling each other or their or their followers battling each other. But I think the specific aspect that Aaron took it to in terms of gods, the idea of of the villain whose goal it was to destroy the gods of the universe. I think that's a really interesting take. On again a broad broad brush storyline. That's that's been done before. That's not a bad thing, you know, by itself. But I I I think the fundamental spin that he took
2: on it is really interesting. So what you're saying is there can be only one is not new. <laughs> I'm almost certain I've seen that once before. It sounds familiar. Yes, just a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think I don't know. Someone may have come up with that concept when they were high in some far off land. But <laughs> it is a nice take, and it is. And that's part of, I think, what speaks to people is it starts to address the role of gods in society and the role of worship, right? Because he's not one of the things that's different about the god killer. This isn't a case where, you know, someone is just saying gods don't exist, right? Which is the common debate between, you know, atheists and other, you know, poly and monotheists online, right? That's something that's, I don't think that's a debate debate that's ever going to be settled short of having a deity show up. And somehow prove that he or she is a deity and saying, no, 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 these are the rules and explain it all again in a manner that can be recorded and verified to the satisfaction of the population. And even then, does that convince everyone? I mean, there's still people out there who think the world is flat. You can just get it to the, where it becomes the overwhelming majority and the doubting minority eventually die off. But this is a guy, he's not, he's not doubting the existence of gods. He's just saying, we don't need them because his experiences with gods are so lousy. And quite frankly, if all the gods in existence ignored the prayers as much as as that guy's did, right, that's, he would have a strong case.
1: <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite classes in college was in the religion department. The philosophy of religion was the class, the philosophy of religion. And, you know, I, I came to that class with a real interest, not having been raised in a religious family at all, but slowly working my way into, into a Christian faith. And that class really was meaningful to me because it, Touching on some of those things that you're mentioning there, Blaine. So what I remember in particular was a section on what constitutes a God. How, how do you define a God? And it was, you know, obviously part religious discussion or philosophical discussion, but also in part a linguistic discussion. And I think that's a lot of what I think is, is, is happening here. And, you know, where you have the, the God of bombs and he sort of never, rev- it takes a while for him to reveal himself. He, I believe that's the one he refers to himself as whatever, I'm the god of lollipops and rainbows, mm-hmm. I'm the god, you know, picking the, you know, I'm the god of trampolines or, you know, whatever it was.
0: Yeah, anything you could see on My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, <laughs> that's what he was the god <laughs> of. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. You know, and so does that really count as a god? So I, I, I came to this particular uh, discussion. I, I mean, that's why Thor and Wonder Woman and, and a lot of them. God-like characters and supernatural characters and comics really, really intrigued me. So this, this topic really intrigued me and I liked the way Aaron uh, went after it. So, you know, the idea that there's a universe full of gods that can somehow be defeated, both of those aspects, a universe of gods and that they can be defeated really tugs at my, my interests. I enjoyed reading this quite a bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it does play a lot into that. And that's something that's been inherent in the Marvel Universe for a while, where it seems to be the concept of the Marvel Universe is every god that actual humanity has ever worshipped exists in the Marvel Universe. Now, the, the Judeo-Christian god appears to be top dog, but all the rest are out there. And Thor would never believe anyone but Odin was top dog, right? right. So there's uh-huh. even debate amongst the gods about who the Supreme God is. And the Judeo-Christian <laughs> god, I think I've only we've ever seen him on panel in uh, one story arc of the Fantastic 4 when he appeared as Jack Kirby to create or to correct the damage oh, right. to Reed Richards face following his encounter with Doctor Doom.
1: I actually think that's closer what you're describing is a little closer to the way DC does it. DC and Marvel treat these things a little bit differently. Uh, a- Emily and I spoke on a on a short box showcase uh, about the theology of the DC universe sort of using the Constantine TV show as sort of the jumping off point for that and the way that you know mystical supernatural side of that universe is handled. I think it is a, generally a little different than the way Marvel does it. I think Marvel tends to put off these gods as well they're just aliens in a lot of cases, where DC has the Spectre. It's hard to get around the idea of what the Spectre is and and who the spe- and who the Spectre works for. Or to some extent who Constantine works for. So, you know, not to say that either company has a fixed, immutable set of, you know, statement of faith, but I, I, I do think that they, they handle them at least a a little bit different. And, and I think you know, a, a lot of it does come down to this idea of what is a god? Ha, ha, how do you define that?
0: Yeah. And that's been as varied in the original worship. I mean, if you go back. Exactly. If you study the Greek mythology or even the Norse mythology, this came from the gods were Immortal in the sense that disease or natural causes could not kill them. But if you decapitate them, they're dead. (laughs) That is something that even like the Norse and Greek worshippers of these deities would all say from the start. Yeah, I mean, Odin gave up an eye for knowledge. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of Christians I know who would be grotesquely offended by the (laughs) notion that their god could be injured or killed. I remember Backlash when Dogma came out. Right. I remember, you know, all sorts of suggestions. I remember, you know, people complaining about actually Jason Aaron's run on Ghost Rider that wrapped up in the Heaven on Fire, which was probably my favorite Ghost Rider story.
1: (laughs) These are certainly not specifically comic book topics. You know, these are these are human human issues, human topics. And again, I I really like the way that way that Aaron really handled these and, and really did go at them from. You know, the the Norse characters being the point-of-view characters, Mm -hmm. starting from that perspective.
0: And one of the things I really liked about it was the way he handled the villain. Early on, he's saying, I'm not a god. You believe he's just a powerful fighter, but not necessarily a god, because that's the way these gods have been treated in the Marvel Universe. By the end of the story, there is debate amongst the characters about whether or not the god killer is a mortal who has now become a god himself. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, I mean, if you have the power, or uh, not even power, if you have the ability to dispatch beings that are considered gods by whomever, it is only going to be a matter of time before you encounter someone who views you as a god because you are able to defeat those that they view as a god because only another god could do that. They themselves, as some uh, level of mortal, could not. So interestingly enough, as the story went along, my expectation was when in the story will he or someone acknowledge him as like for what he's doing rather than as one of us. He has, you know, at what point did he become one of them and was no longer one of us?
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That was inevitable and it came. And it was, again, I really like the way Jason Aaron handles this. I I actually love to hear him in interviews talk about his views on this. I don't know how open he would be in interviews because there's always the, when you're talking with candor about your religious beliefs, there's always the risk of alienating more audience members than you're endearing. Right. When you're having that frank and open discussion.
1: Yeah. No matter what the the background or perspectives of the writer is, writing a respectful story or writing a fair story is really maybe the most that we can ask. Yeah. And and I think that that was, for the most part, certainly accomplished here.
0: It was. Just as it was, as I said, his Ghost Rider run addressed a lot of the same issues as well, which I don't know if you guys are familiar with Heavens on Fire I'm going to assume there's at least one listener who's not, and give a quick recap anyway. The tagline for it was, save the Antichrist, save the world. <laughs> so the notion was that an angel by the name of Zadkiel had looked at Lucifer's mistakes, figured he'd learned from them, and decided to overthrow the Christian god in heaven and take over as well. In what may or may not have been a coincidence, in the publishing schedule, the week where Zadkiel managed to oust the traditional god and take over was the week that Norman Osborn became head of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the dark reign began. The whole save the Antichrist deal was, well, God had this master plan, and the only way to avert God's plan, even though now he is in the role of God, and create his own plan, he's got to destroy God's plan first. So if you kill the Antichrist before he comes out, that usurps God's plan, and now there's an opportunity to write a new plan. So the Ghost Riders, multiple, had to protect the Antichrist long enough to get the proper God back on Heaven's throne. And that storyline wrapped up right before siege which ousted norman osborne as the head of shield so it's like you know one week they fix it the judeo-christian god is back on the throne mean, i remember if it was the next week or the same week but that's when you know the avengers and the other heroes said you know what we've had enough of this norman osborne's going down so that that timing to exactly match dark Reign. i've always wondered if that was a deliberate plan or just a nice coincidence, because it worked very well for the tone of the Marvel Universe.
1: <laughs> I always had my suspicions about Osborne.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was also Jason Aaron, and it's like said he's put a lot of thought into this. Not that he doesn't put a lot of thought into everything he writes, but this question, like Alan said, the linguistics of what is a god, and what makes someone a god, whether he has those questions about our universe, aka Earth 1218, or there was just something he's considered in the Marvel Universe where they've established all these gods exist. Either way, he's put a lot of thought into it, and it shows in the writing. So this is one of the stories you can kick back and read it for the sake of pure enjoyment and not looking deeper, and walk away saying, that was good. But he's also giving you enough meat that if you want to sit and analyze and debate, it's there to do it. Definitely. I think we've sort of accidentally stumbled into the deeper meanings. That portion I stole from Mission Log about whether or not there are any morals or messages or or hidden meanings and i think that's a lot of it Um, on the surface we've got a a, a good story about a very powerful character at the end of his rope who really thinks this might be the end of everything this might be something i cannot beat and on the other hand if you want to dig into it it's well what does that mean when this character's a god i don't know alan and i have spoken a lot about this ed did you have
2: anything to add i i just find myself in agreement with most of what you gentlemen are saying uh, both as far as the story uh, as far as my personal perspective goes, I also identify as a Christian, so topics about uh, the definition of uh, God or a god is is always something that has interested me before uh, I became a christian as a as a child. The fact that Thor was identified and i'm i 'm throwing out air quotes which you guys can see on the camera, but of <laughs> course, you folks listening can 't as as a god, that's you know, that's always been something that's intrigued me. And I think that Jason Aaron perhaps was trying to interject his thoughts into this. I'm not sure. I've never heard him interview on this particular story before, so I honestly am not comfortable in trying to say, you know, what I think that he was trying to say. I've come across both personally and in other reviews, several different things that could have been his point, besides just trying to tell what he thought was a cool story, which I think was a a large part of his point. You know, he had this idea. The overarching story that I got out of it, though, was the God's god killer's, shall we say, ascension to being a god himself. To me, that was the story. And Aaron thought that it would be cool to tell that story using Thor as, if not the vehicle, then the foil. Thor's already there. Can this other dude get there? And then he used the concept of the godkiller and his terrible life up to that point, and then his climb to what, in my opinion, was his achieving the same level of godhood that he had had issue with that started him on this quest to begin with. So – Ultimately, to me, the story was of this character's drive to get rid of something, and of course, he became what he was trying to get rid of, ultimately. And then, to me, the third act, the last five issues, was more the story of him coming to grips with that, not just realization, but that actuality, and we see that rather violently – as he expressed to his uh, his wife or his mate, uh, he didn't come to grips with it very well. Oh yeah,
0: I think it's very safe to say he did not come to grips with this very well at all.
2: Well, I, you could make an argument that he did not have a whole lot of grips to begin with, of course. But yeah, at, at the end, he he did not he did not just not like what he had become, but he did not like the fact that he had become what he did not like. Wow, that's just all kinds of doublespeak there. But Read the story, guys, if you haven't, and you you'll definitely see what we're talking about almost parenthetically here. It can be perceived very, very deeply, or if you just want to read a good uh superhero beat the bad guy kind of story it's it's got that there's multiple multiple layers depending on how personally you want to take the story, and I think that's one of the things that all three of us have been bouncing around as different levels of personalness that the story means to us
1: and You can, you know, obviously take God killer and throw it into, into a religious context. Ed's pointing out almost the psychological context. You just think about sort of, it is a classic story of someone who becomes that which they despise. Again, classic, you know, concept and in, in fiction, almost in much more common in, in literary fiction really Mm -hmm. than in what we call action adventure or fantasy sci-fi. So again, Aaron pulling in these multiple threads and, you know, managing to tell an interesting story that's also a really good comic book story. It's an achievement. It really is.
0: It is. It's a greater achievement than the the Red Hulk introduction, which I think is the other time I could think of in Marvel Comics where this has happened, Right, where Thunderbolt Ross became that Hulk he was trying to right. destroy. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, in that case, Loeb was focused, I think, much more on action when he was writing it than the character part. He didn't ignore the characters, but there's just so much more emphasis on the action that, I mean, some of that depth was lost. It felt more like lip service, whereas this, it felt like there's legitimate analysis going on. Not just throwing the concept on the table for the readers to pick up, but actually doing some of that right on the page while restraining himself to the point that it doesn't become the philosophy that takes over the book. Right. Right. It it never reached the points of, say, Green Lantern Mosaic, which... I don't know if you guys are familiar with that series. It lasted 18 issues and was planned for more. And I think part of the reason it it struggled and they wrapped it up a lot sooner than expected, reading it, it feels like they never did decide whether that was going to be a superhero action book or a philosophy book. Right. Right. And they didn't walk the line well enough that it just, it felt like neither side was served sufficiently and it lost both audiences.
1: And let me say, in this case, there's some heady issues in here if if you want them, but you don't have to go there as opposed to, say, some things that classically a Grant Morrison or an Alan Moore might write where you have to go there. Or <laughs> or it's almost either written intentionally at that level just as a show-off, maybe, you know, to how bright the writer is or to we're going to make you think about these things. You know, again, this is written as a pretty fast-paced action-adventure story, but there's something else there to think about if you'd like to.
0: There is, and not... that's... Frankly, that's the way I like my fiction. You know, if you wanted to shut your brain off and get the entertainment, you can. If you want to look at it in depth, that depth is there. Exactly. Right. I, I like stories that do not break under scrutiny. And this, not just in terms of the philosophy, but in terms of the time travel story structure, you can scrutinize this and it still doesn't break. And that in itself is a pretty significant achievement.
1: Agreed.
0: It's really hard to do when time travel's involved. <laughs> so... I think we've kind of done a lot of this naturally, but do you guys have any closing thoughts
2: on the story? One of the things that, uh, that you've been trying to cover with this series is the, uh, significance. And I think we, we kind of touched on that earlier. I think, and, and this is potentially not a very popular, I think, but I, let's, let's say I suspect. I suspect that one of the things that really helped this story make the top 75 was the nearness to the asking of the question. Truth be told, I believe that you mentioned the um, Simonson run earlier in the show. I think that that will be uh, fondly remembered longer by not just Thor readers, but by readers of comics who were attracted to Thor at the time than the same for this particular story. And so uh, 50 years from now, I certainly feel that the Simonson Thor would make a 75. I question that Aaron's, or at least this Aaron's story of Thor, would make a top 75 for Marvel. So I think that the nearness to when this was published and when the question was asked really helped this story make the list.
1: Yes, it certainly has the advantage of being a new Thor book and even a new number one. In the age of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, so it 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 may be a bit inflated by that. I I I agree with that I do think it's very good. I don't know, you know, if they do this again in a few years, the top eighty stories from Marvel's first eighty years, or maybe the first sixty years of modern, you know, the top sixty stories of the modern, uh, whatever it would be that that it might not uh, might not make it. But I th- I think it might be in the discussion, or at least if you're looking at. Stories from this era, from the early 2010s, you know, I th- I think it might hold up. It might hold up in that sense. You know, it might stick in the countdown. Maybe, maybe a little bit lower. But I th- I think the the last time that that we talked, Blaine, about a, a book that was higher, I think 66th in the listing. You know, that one, that that was a Simonson a, a Simonson story. And part of the problem is there's so much good stuff in the Simonson run. Absolutely. I mean, we, hey, we even kicked around at that issue. It was, it was a single issue, 362. We thought, well, at most, it, at least it should have been 360 through 362. And it's really part of a longer arc. And really, why don't we just go from the whole Simonson run and put that in?
0: Yeah, if, if New Mutants can get the whole Claremont run, there's no reason Thor <laughs> exactly. can't get the Simonson run. Exactly. And Fantastic Four couldn't get the whole Burn run.
1: I mean, you did have the advantage that way, at least. The way they've done it of having two Simonson stories in there. So, you know, yeah. there is, there is that as the, as the advantage. Um, you know, but I do think if Aaron sticks around a few years longer writing with this level of, and the book's pretty popular too. I think, you know, we haven't mentioned the sales figures, but it's, it's done pretty well. So it can, it's been a consistent top 30 book overall and really top 15 or 20 among Marvel, which is pretty good, you know, which is pretty, it's in the top half, top third of what they are producing.
0: It is certainly selling well enough that when Aaron leaves the book with the sales numbers where they are, it's going to be because he was done with the book. Right. Right. He, he's in no danger of getting fired or the or the title getting canceled.
2: Also, I think uh, as my personal opinion, kind of a, a perspective check of the importance of this story. We've mentioned storytelling, I believe is far more important Because I believe that what Aaron is doing on the Thor book now is more telling than what this story is that we're talking about as far as a a lasting, I guess you could almost say legacy, uh, on the character or even on Marvel Comics. Are you referring specifically to Lady Thor? Yes. Did that change, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that is a, in a lot of ways, a more profound change to the character than anything that occurred to the Thor character. In his first arc that, that we're talking about here.
0: I'll, I'll take your word for that. I, I don't generally follow Thor. So these 11 issues are the only 11 Jason Aaron issues of Thor I've read. So I, I can't really view it in that context. If I were to look at this, I would say it is certainly entertaining or more entertaining than some of the issues on the list. I swear some of these issues on the list are on the list because character X appears for the first time.
1: Okay. Yeah. Right.
0: Yep. It's as an entertainment value, I put it higher up on the list. If you're looking for something with that more literary quality of getting to the deeper philosophical end, this will definitely overtake a number of the issues on the or the stories on the list. But if you're just saying like the greatest overall stories when you're looking at a combination of deeper meanings, entertainment value and impact on the continuity in the long term, yeah, I don't know how well it's going to hold up in the long term. If you're yeah. saying, you know, if Marvel is their 100th anniversary, I wouldn't bet on this being on the top 100 of all Marvel stories list. No, I wouldn't either. Yeah, I would say if you come up with a list of the most entertaining Thor stories ever told, it could be pretty near the top of that one, if you restrict your stories to just the Thor character instead of the whole publishing line. Right. That you don't need to get very deep before it shows up. My I may not be the best one to judge that since. <laughs> the Thor I've read is basically Essentials. Um The first chunk of Walt Simonson's run, which I haven't finished. Uh, Straczynski's Thor? And now this.
2: Well, but maybe you would be a better judge because you don't have 30 plus years of emotional investment. You can be a little bit more uh, critical because, you know, for me, anything that I read now, this applies to most of comic books, but uh, to Thor as well. I'm going to compare to something else because I have so much of something else as well as in this particular character. I have quite a bit of something else also. So. Any time I read any Thor story, I'm automatically in my mind comparing it or comparing the creators or comparing the art or so. So perhaps I being a a longer standing fan of Thor am more biased than you would be potentially unbiased because you haven't read nearly as much of the character. You could give a more not necessarily honest or, you know, dishonest opinion, but maybe a more fair assessment of of the true impact of the story in that you have just read this story almost in isolation and not, you know, 30 or 40 years of continuity and and everything else. You have less baggage with uh, to to juggle, to give an opinion.
0: That could be, at least looking at the publisher's line. So I'm probably not very well qualified to name the best Thor stories of all time because the ones that already have that reputation or the very first ones ever published are really the only ones I've read. Right. But, you know, how would this fit the entire Marvel pantheon? I could do that because... I mean, frankly, I took one look at the list and said it needs more Daredevil.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's me. I mean,
1: <laughs> funny, I said it needed more Doctor Doom, but maybe that's just me.
0: <laughs> yeah, see, I was the guy when uh, when Mark Wade was relaunching Daredevil, and he's the one going, you know, we're putting him against Claw because you got a guy with you know the blind guy with the super enhanced hearing who's never felt Claw, the man of sound, before, and he needs to be in that. And I'm the guy reading this list going. Claus showing up again it's about time we haven't seen him since issue 237 <laughs> which is like one shot fill it it was later when I, I read the Mark Wade interviews I'm like how did Mark Waite miss that it's there I've got the issue it's uh, cover date of December 1986
1: if I know this the writer should know this absolutely
0: yeah I had that same issue when I, I heard the interview on word balloon of them with the the writer of the pet avengers saying you know this the Assistant Editor found out that Speedball has a cat, but his name Niels was lousy, so they were, they brought him into the pet Avengers, but renamed him and I'm going, but Niels was a brilliant name. Speedball's origin, the cat belonged to the scientists who were studying getting energy from extra dimensional sources, and the first scientist ever to propose that was Niels Bohr. That's Niels- clearly who he's named after. Yeah. <laughs> like this is a brilliant tribute. Don't rename Niels, but yeah, <laughs> some of that is our own context and our own background
1: we We bring our own biases and experiences you know, to these, to these books. And Ed mentioned without revealing either one of ours age, which is really similar, <laughs> which are both really similar to each other. You know, the classic line, I, I, I love it. You know, the golden age is 11, you know, whatever you read when you were 11, that's the most important thing. You, and yeah. so, you know, uh, uh, you know, Ed, Ed actually on 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 his podcast had the experience of revisiting books that he had read as a slightly younger man.
2: Slightly, yes.
1: <laughs> you know, but, but that stuff, you, you can't, you know, uh, uh, you know, you're always comparing to, to everything that you've read
0: before, and and, and that's okay. Yeah, and there. although I will say there are times when you do not want to go back and watch stuff you loved when you were 11. <laughs> Seven-year-old me would have told you that Knight Rider was the greatest show that had ever seen television. Seventeen-year-old me couldn't make it through an episode.
2: Ah, <laughs> uh, Seventeen-year-old you had some issues, man.
0: I think that's sounds like that's all the, the comments we had to say about Thor God of Thunder. So, again, Alan and Ed, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: And uh, for those listening along at home, the next podcast, Deadpool Kills, is actually a, a composite of three different miniseries. So in Spot 51, we have Deadpool Kills the Marvel Universe, issues 1 through 4, Deadpool Kill the Strated, issues 1 through 4, and Deadpool Kills Deadpool, issues 1 through 4 which are collected in three different trade paperbacks for the three different story arcs, the Deadpool minibus hardcover, which has them all in one spot. They can also be found on Comixology and Marvel Digital Unlimited. The Digital Unlimited is where I plan to read them. You will have to poke around, because the Deadpool Killlustrated. it's not treated as a four-issue miniseries. It is in there listed as four separate issues, so when they put him back in Moby Dick, it's the Moby Dick issue. When they put him back in Pride and Prejudice, it's the Pride and Prejudice issue and, and so forth. So they're all there, but it may require some hunting. Okay, and remember, you can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can rate it in both of those places. You can also find the show and its RSS feed directly on Bureau42.com. And uh, Alan and Ed, if you'd like to remind people quickly where they can find you.
1: I'm at Relatively relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com
2: or search Relatively Geeky in iTunes. And you can find my shows on the Deliberate Noise slash Comic Book Noise Network, as well as many others.
0: All right. So thanks again for joining us. And, audience, thank you for listening.